Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 369 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, we're glad to present a new series, Three Little Things. Here, the writer Sita Brahmachari and our host Julia Copas speak about three objects that have a special significance in Sita's writing life, and Sita passes on three of her top writing tips. Hello and welcome to Three Little Things from the Royal Literary Fund, in which we talk with writers about their work and writing life by way of three objects that have particular significance for them. We also ask guests for three golden nuggets of advice to pass on to other writers or would-be writers. And today's guest is award-winning writer Sita Brahmachari. Sita writes intergenerational rites of passage novels as well as short stories and plays. Her debut novel Artichoke Hearts won the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. The Guardian hailed it as one of the top 50 diverse books since the 1950s. Sita has also published non-fiction, including an academic study on interculturalism and essays, articles and interviews about her work with refugee and disenfranchised communities. She's also a dramaturg and mentor to many other writers and writer-in-residence at Islington Centre for Refugees and Migrants and an Amnesty International ambassador. In 2021, she was chosen as a World Book Day author, and for her current novel in progress, she has been exploring the devastating impacts of increased social inequality on the well-being of young people. Sita, do you have any time to sleep? That is quite a list. Uh, good question. Um, yeah, no, I do sleep. Actually, I do sleep. Um, I do have uh, I do have lots of kind of dreaming time and walking time and uh, with my family time. So yeah, I do. Um, good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and dreaming time is uh, particularly important, I think. Um, well, thank you so much for making the time to speak uh, to me today. Before we go on and talk about the objects that you've brought along. Could you perhaps give us a brief outline of your most recent novel, When Secrets Set Sail? Just a few sentences. Yes, uh, When Secrets Set Sail um, is a story about two uh, girls who live in a house in um, Hackney uh, called the House of Ayers. And it used to be the house of Indian nursemaids um, who would bring children over from Uh, the British Raj um, to schools and homes here and sometimes would not get their return passage um, back to their their home countries and their homelands and so it's about these two girls who live in this house who hear the whispers of history and um, they are they are told by a woman that appears to them through the ear of a conch shell that if they believe in her that they'll they'll you know they can discover her history. Fantastic. And am I right in thinking that they are set a task to do? Yes. So Lucky, uh, which is actually not her name, um, they have to also discover her name, has cut up pieces of her sari uh, and placed them in places that she was in, including uh, the V&A Museum, um, 
what is currently a nursing home but was once a school um, I don't want to tell you all the places but she has pieces of her sari with her embroidery on it with her name and she says piece me together or my story is lost forever so they have to they know how many pieces of her sari they have to collect and they're sent on a quest to go and find these these pieces of her history it sounds like exactly the sort of book I would love to have read at that, <laughs> that age. Uh, and could you have a more fitting plot for this podcast about meaningful objects? You know, they've got to go off in search for these pieces of uh, precious embroidered sari. I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with patchwork quilts of storytelling and, and um, objects. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I think I'm sort of known as when I arrive at an event in the days that we arrived at real events in school, um, I, full of these carrying the, all these bags full of these magical objects um, yeah. I'm kind of quite known for that. <laughs> um, now we won't give away the, the name then of the grandmother but the two girls involved are called Usha and Imi is that right? For Imtiaz? Yes Usha and Im- Imtiaz yes yeah. that's right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's something preventing the grandmother from passing on isn't there into the the afterlife until these bits of the sari have been found. That's right lots of reviews have talked about how ultimately uplifting the story is it's a very touching story of uh, friendship and and sister sistership or sisterhood as well um but this blending of magic and reality is that something that you've always done in your work I think in everything that I have written, there's been this moment where whatever the realities that children or families or adults are facing in my stories, Mm. there's a moment of kind of awe and wonder where they step aside from the real world and into a kind of portal of possibilities. In in the front of When Secrets Set Sail, there's a beautiful illustration by Evan Hollingdale of the children's bedroom. And Mm -hmm. the downstairs of this house is a refugee centre. The middle uh, section of the house is living quarters. But the upstairs of the house is a dreaming space for these two girls and in it it has uh, objects from ships that have sailed around the world in history so there's anchors and there's sails and there's uh, chronometers to navigate their way it's a completely magical space and as soon as you open the book and you see that picture you know that whatever harsh realities that the children have to face they've always got this portal of possibility open to be to be entering a kind of magical dream world yeah and to return to i think i'd quite like to go and live in your portal portal of possibilities sounds like (laughs) the very best place uh, you could be okay well I think it's time for you to reveal your first object could you describe it for us and tell us uh, a little bit about its significance for you what's its connection to your writing life so the first object that I'm going to reveal to you is an artichoke heart charm Now, this is a charm that I planted in the very first novel that I wrote, Artichoke Hearts. And I placed this charm in the story because I wanted to have a symbol of an object that a grandmother could pass to her granddaughter, a charm. So something very simple that everybody might might be able to pass, doesn't have to be a valuable charm. That story is set in the last month of the life of the grandmother. And it's, it's all about what one generation can pass to another. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, well, what, you know, what's this charm going to be? I don't want it to be a kind of naff sort of object. Um, and, and I had randomly an artichoke in the fridge. 
Oh, I love that. I love the randomness of that. That's fantastic. It, it yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the onion layers sort of thing. Yes, but, yes. But in that story, um, the grandmother gives the Archduchess charm to her granddaughter and she says, Amira, I'm giving you this charm because most children have beautiful, open, loving, trusting hearts. And the things that happen to them as they go through life, you know, necessarily, they have to kind of sometimes grow tougher layers of their hearts. And she said, but one of the things that I want you to remember as you carry this charm through your life is never have such a, a well-protected heart that it, it's hardened against feeling for other people. Mm. Always keep the centre of your heart open. So this has become my symbol for all of my writing, really. And even the characters that I write who, who you know, appear to be not very likeable, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the work, I think, for me is about unpeeling those those layers and finding, you know, what made that person who they are. Well, you mentioned the House of Ayers, and it strikes me um, that place is very important to you. So you've told me a bit about this house for nannies who who weren't able to get their passage back to India. Um, it's absolutely central to the book, isn't it? Um, how did you discover this place? Is it is it based on a real place, and how did you set about learning about it? Before I was writing these novels, I was working on a RSC production mm-hmm. of Midnight's Children doing the education work. And part of that work was to go around different communities and hear people's memories of partition. And I was in a, a nursing home in the East End of London, uh, speaking to some elders about their memories of partition and some of them had dementia. And uh, there was a lady in the corner and she was saying, Sita, write something tell them something about the ayahs. Nobody ever talks about the ayahs. And um, I wasn't a writer then, but I think I had the writer in me because I actually, I just became fascinated by what this lady was saying. And then did a bit of research and went to find out this house actually exists and it's a house which is now in flats and people live there. There's no there's no reference to it being the House of Ayers, that it was once run as a mission for abandoned Indian nursemaids. Um, so years later, I started to think, actually, this story hasn't left me. I, I, I want to write something about it. I felt when I was writing the story is that she was kind of with me. So I placed um, Kalima, the grandmother, in the story as an elder right in the centre in that dreaming room. And I suppose, in I haven't really thought about it, but I suppose in a way I was placing that lady yes, there. Yes, she was the sort of ghost of the ghost of Kalimar. <laughs> yeah, the, the ghost, and, yeah. And, and the reason why, you know, Kalimar's ghost can't rest without, and this isn't actually, it's right at the beginning of the story, so it's not a plot spoiler, is yeah. because she hasn't given up on finding out what this story is in the same way that that lady with dementia yes, found a way of to know. Yeah. Yeah, telling me that to tell that story. There was this convergence between um, the Ayers, who would have been working class women, wherever they came from in the empire, and particularly from India, mm. and and then the working class people of the East End of London. Yes. And of course, you know, my dad, you know, as a doctor coming here, where did those doctors go to? Those those doctors from the motherland countries, they went to new practices in the newly established NHS in the East End of London or TB hospitals, which my dad also worked in around the country in places like Yorkshire and Derby, um, infectious diseases hospitals, because those doctors were qualified in those things. And those were also not the posts that, that necessarily the English doctors wanted to hold. Yes, how lovely to leave them to other people. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so, you know, so I had great pleasure in placing in 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 the in the 60s in the story because the story sort of really goes from sort of slightly pre-Victorian times to to the contemporary times. Uh, in the 60s, that house in King Edward's Road, the bottom of that house, wasn't a refugee centre. That hmm. was an early doctor's surgery. Oh, okay. Um, so it sort of passes as a caring place through the generations. And that's the foundation of the house. So it's really important to me. Fantastic. And and your father came over 12 years after partition, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. He was a great storyteller, my dad. And, um, you know, he would talk in a funny way about going through the Suez Canal and, you know, oh, my belly would empty. And it was, I thought my whole world was coming out of my belly and, you know, all of this sort of stuff that he would say. And, it, you know, as a child, you just sort of listen. And, you know, that ship journey before he used to say things like, you know, before you could communicate you know, before Facebook, Google, all of these things, you, you'd, you'd be there with your suitcase and there'd be the photographs of your family and then, you know, often wouldn't communicate again until a telegram, either for good or ill, um, or the odd phone call. Oh, gosh. And, you know, for yeah, us to yeah. imagine that now yeah. is... Um, so do you, do you think that your, your love of stories and storytelling is from your father? I think actually probably from both sides of my family. Mm-hmm. But I think... Um, uh, my, so my mum's from the Lake District and, you know, the landscape of the Lake District and the natural world is really uh, forefront of a lot of my stories. But I think with my dad, before we went to India, it was when he used to tell us stories about his passage over or yes, his yeah. childhood. And before we went, it was the imagination that kind of flowered in me about, oh, and what must have that uncle be like or that cousin or whatever. Yes, so yeah. it, I imagined it and I dreamed it and I wrote it in notebooks and sort of doodled. And then when we went there, there was a reality that was either what I'd imagined or less or more. Mm-hmm. But I think in the space between is where my kind of writing bent grew. Yes, yeah. Gaps are fertile places for the imagination to grow and flourish, aren't they? Okay, so the House of Ayers is is full of secrets. And now I am, of course, dying to find out what your second object is and what secrets it has to reveal about you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So my second object is the painting palette, um, which I'm holding on my knee. Uh Um, And this this actually, in reality, belonged to uh, Rosie, my mother-in-law. And it has all of the the colours and the textures and the laid down paints of all of the paintings that she did in her life from when she was a child. It's an extraordinarily beautiful object in its own right. The colours are extraordinary. They are so extraordinary. I take this sometimes when I go and meet children in school and, and they, you know, we live in such a sort of screen world and and they want to touch it um, because you can feel the textures yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it is texture as well as, as colour, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so. it's, it's the layers and layers and layers of paint. Again, this thing about layers. And, and children really respond very interestingly to this because I remember writing a plan and saying that I was going to talk about the textures and layers and colour of storytelling. And I remember um, a, a teacher saying, I think that's going to be a bit abstract for our, our children. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it never has been. I'm going to give it a go. And if Little it is, I'll did just you do something know. else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the whole session. So as a result of, of looking at the palette, actually spending like 20 minutes looking at all of the different colours, the children then imagined what, what the painting would be in pink and placed words on that on that painting. That So they would go off and perhaps to do a pink rose or whatever, and then perhaps somebody would write um 
you know, a poem about their, their grandmother Rose or whatever. So there yeah. were, so from this palette, amazing flourishings come in terms of children's being able to express themselves. Um, and, and so I say to children, you must try to find what your best place to express yourself is. Well, Sita, you do know that you're going to get a flood of inquiries about workshops now don't you? Because that that sounds incredibly inspiring. Now, this is a, a, a slightly difficult question, maybe, but mm. I want to ask you what it is that you want for your for your readers? What do you hope that they will take away from reading When Secrets Set Sail or from your work in general? And I want, in one of my stories, a little story called Worry Angels, which is about anxiety in young children, um, one of the refugee children in the story, she says, uh, feel about it. Um, and yeah. then the translator corrects her and says, no, it's in English, it's think about it. And and then Grace, who is the kind of very creative teacher that runs the centre, she says, no, feel about it. She means feel about it. What a great and, teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, tomorrow is Empathy Day, World Empathy Day. And one of the things that I feel in writing into childhood is what it must feel like to be a child hearing and seeing such um, unempathetic things happening in the world and mm -hmm. seeing their fellow children, you know, walking the earth unaccompanied and unheld and seeing mm -hmm. the images that they see. How do you navigate that journey? So in all of my stories, I want uh, to go back to this holding the heart. Mm -hmm. I want to hold the heart, but I also, my characters like Usha and Imtias, they either are quietly feisty or they're sort of loud and feisty, but they, they have a kind of sense of agency and they have a mission in terms of going through their life that they want to make a difference. I, I always really hate it when I hear adults saying to children, well, you know, life's not fair. If child says, it's not fair and that life's not fair. It's a horrible closing <laughs> down, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, amidst this sort of general lack of empathy and all the all the darknesses that are surrounding us and especially young people at this time, it feels to me that young people are kind of lighting a beacon. They they, they seem more involved than when I was little uh, with what's going on around them. Um, so I think there's great hope for young people, you know, from that point of view, in that respect. Um, and books like yours can only foster that, that sense of hope. I, I, really, I really want that to be, you know, absolutely an ingredient in the stories. Um, but I do see, totally take on what you're saying, is that in a way, I think we're living in times where children time and time again and young people are having to step up and speak mm. truth to power because and the adults who are supposed to be caring for them are not caring for their rights and their needs. Mm. And so mm. as we've seen with Black Lives Matter, as we've seen with you know young people going to actually say, actually, this is a planet that, mm. that, that we're living in where our universal rights of our future has been taken away from us in terms of uh, climate activism. Yeah. Greta Thunberg, Amanda Gorman. Again mm. and again, you're seeing that who who is it that is speaking for our world? No, exactly. That is making yep. you listen. Yeah. And it isn't. It isn't necessarily those people in power. I mean, in fact, the banner bag. I thought long and hard whether I should choose one of my objects as the banner bag because it's it's the banners that have been carried by one family throughout history. Wow, that's that's a powerful object. Yeah, it's a it's a it's another powerful object. But in tender earth. Um, one of my novels, 
the child finds this banner bag which belonged to her grandparents and un- unravels the banners and finds that the banners that her grandparents carried are the same banners, like the anti-racist mm. banners, the rights for refugee people banners and the environmental rights banners that she is having to carry today. Yes, we, we tend to think that everything is happening now for the first time, don't we? But um, that's a really powerful reminder that that's not the case. And I see that you've managed to sneak in an extra object there, Sita. Um, <laughs> yes, you see, my patchwork storytelling quilt cannot be contained. <laughs> no, it can't, evidently. Um, which brings us to your actual third and final object. So can you can you tell us what that is? Um, I know it's to do with your father, who we've already uh, talked about a little bit. Well, it is to do with my father. It's I'm, I'm actually holding the original photograph in my hand. Um, you have... Uh, perhaps the original photograph, but also uh, Jane Ray, who's an illustrator and writer that I work with. It's a beautiful rendition of my dad. She said it wasn't a portrait of him, but an impression of yeah. him. Um, he's wearing a long coat. Um, he's with his friends who are also doctors who came from India. He's in Trafalgar Square and he's holding the pigeons and a camera around his neck. And he's recently arrived in this country. And um, several of his colleagues are kind of bending down timidly to, to, to look at the pigeons, but he is holding two pigeons in his hands. Um, and he often used to talk about this picture. And he used to say that, um, you know, Sita, when we first came to this country, um, we believed that everybody was very smart, like Marlon Brando and wearing these beautiful long coats. And um, so we spent all our rupees on these long coats. And when we came here, we find people are dressing quite shoddily, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But underneath our coats, we are wearing tank tops in bright colours like pink and orange and mustard, you know, bright colours that do not fit under this grey sky, more, you know, from Calcutta colours. And each one of us discover we are wearing these tank tops. Without telling each other. Exactly. And uh, And the colours you describe remind me of uh, the colours of that that painting palette. It's sort of vibrant, (laughs) yes. Very (laughs) non-British sky. So this idea, this is so. This is the way that I, I able, I am able to uh, teach really young children what subtext means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's hidden under the, the surface, quite, quite literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he also used to say that on the on the fountain at the back, there's a mother with a child, and he used to say, and you know, see. So then I was going to treat parents and children. I would maybe treat that woman and her child Mm. this was the beginning of my journey and so I think you know when when people talk about arrival many many people have stories of arrival from many different places Um, whether it could be from one village to another from one Mm. country to another Uh, the arrival story is kind of in all of my stories and what that means to uproot from one place and to have to uh, re-establish yourself in another place. And begin something completely new, yeah. Absolutely, and that's, I mean, of course, that's storytelling. That's what, you know, that's how, you know, all stories begin with a change in something. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, could you tell us a little bit about your own way into writing? We've heard a bit about your your father's storytelling Mm. uh, and the influence of your, your mother's sort of landscape. So have you always written? Um, and how did you get your first publishing deal? So I have I have been writing for a very long time since I was a small child, um, and I learned to write by a method of writing where you didn't have to learn how to 
spell. Um, sadly, I don't spell that well still. But what it did allow me, it was it was in the 70s and it was a method um, that that was used to allow children to express themselves yeah. uh, quickly in writing. And um, actually, I've discovered there's quite a lot of writers, published writers, who, who actually Isn't that interesting? write in that way. Yeah. Um, and so I could write really before I could read. And back then, the things that I could read weren't necessarily, I don't know, they, they just, they weren't grabbing me. They weren't telling sort of these diaspora stories like I was experiencing in my own family. I wasn't finding those kind of those characters represented or those sort of experiences that I was looking for. So I just kept writing. And so I've got my own childhood notebooks. So and um, are they written in a sort of phonetic? I mean, could I read them? Would I be able to understand if I found one of your notebooks, what you'd written? Yeah, because yeah. I because I what I would do is I would I wasn't necessarily just fixed on writing. I was fixed on collecting. So yeah. I'd be collecting tickets and photographs. Oh, and so wonderful. You'd, you know, you could work it out like you can with very young children's writing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So we also ask in this podcast for three bits of uh, pithy advice that you might give to someone who wants to write themselves or who is already writing. Um, would that be one of them to to not care too much about, you know, how you get something down? Just get it down. I have lots of notebooks and I really love my notebooks. Um, my notebooks are quite wild. So they, they're kind of, they, they're not linear at all. So they contain stamps from when I was a child and then uh, an attempt to sketch of a room. I, I always think I love notebooks and I love seeing other authors' notebooks. Uh, I find, sometimes I find them as interesting as the structured work, perhaps more. Um, but I, I think keep keep notebooks and I don't know how things connect, but eventually I do find a connection. Uh, and I'm pretty stream of consciousness in what I write. And I, I don't tend to go to the computer until I can't stop myself, if you see what I mean. I like that. So, so we will say that your first bit of advice is get a notebook or mm. lots of notebooks and gather, mm. gather, gather. Collect. Collect. Yes, I think, yeah. I think it's a sort of I, the mentality that I have to writing is a bit like you know, a child, the time, first time you take them to the beach. Yeah. And everything is of interest. Yeah. Um, and later, you obviously, you know, you build the sandcastle and, and some things you use and some things you don't. But, you know, allow yourself that wonder at everything. Yeah. Um, oh, I remember collecting little bits of sea glass. So exciting. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I think that's what you've got to allow yourself and not get caught up in too many other people's processes. I do think there probably are as many processes as, as there are writers. Yes. But I do think you mentioned, Julia, um, do it for yourself first. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, people often ask me, and when you picture your audience in your mind, well, sometimes I do. But actually, first of all, I just put I mark make on a page. Yeah, I think it can be um, quite inhibiting to think too much about uh, other people's opinions, I guess, of what you're getting down. You've got to stay with that initial excitement, haven't you? That makes you want to write in the first place. That's so true. And I think often people who want to be, uh, who, you know, want to, who want to be published writers, um, they show their work too soon to people. Yeah. And then you get as many, and if you show your work to five different people, early work before you've really found you know the core of it yourself yeah. you have five different responses yeah at least so Artichoke Hearts was my first novel and I wrote it really for myself um, and 
And then I showed it to my family and my husband said, you should send that off. That's a fantastic work of the imagination. And um, and so I sent I set, did send it off to agents and, and I got I was very, very lucky to get responses. And then quite quickly, a publishing deal with Macmillan Children's Books. Not just it was anywhere. Pick- but I know Macmillan. it was, it was yeah. so exciting, so exciting, yeah. and um, it was picked up by a junior editor there called Samantha Swinnerton, who's not a junior editor anymore. We've yeah. actually worked on f- uh, five books together now, uh, so she really championed the book, and it did extremely well, didn't it? We got it got the Waterstones Children's uh, Book Prize. I literally still can't quite believe it, but it, it that was my first novel, and I kind of think I don't like to say it too much because I don't want to be disliked. <laughs> Oh, I don't <laughs> think you'll be disliked. But, we we but, couldn't dislike you. <laughs> my first book, but of yeah. course, I did wait a long time before I showed anyone my writing. And it, and and she phoned me up. I remember the day she phoned me up, and she said, "Sita, are you sitting down?" It's one, I bet. you know. And, and I was really shocked. Um, and actually, the, to go back to the beginning, uh, on that night, my husband presented me with the artichoke heart charm, which I invented, which is in the novel. And he went to a maker and got it made for me. It's a silver oh, I charm. See. So it's that way yeah. round. Yes, I just invented it, you see. I think sometimes people get a bit disappointed, but I think I think it's powerful to say, no, it was that way around because it's about the power of the imagination and that's what we use as writers. Yeah, much better. Um, Life copying art. Yeah. yeah. And he presented it to me. And then when we when I went to the Waterstones Award, I was showing people these things and, and he said, don't tell anyone when you, if you receive, if you have to do a speech, don't tell anyone about the charm. And I couldn't resist. And I told everyone at that speech about the charm. And then everybody kind of, who was with their partners, kind of looked at their partners like, I haven't had an artichoke heart charm. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I have a jewel in every book that I write now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ever, ever more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. So did you uh, yeah. did you know that he was having it made? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Wow. That's one of the best romantic yeah. stories I've ever heard. <laughs> Um, Okay, how are we getting on with our bits of advice? So we've got, don't show your work too soon, collect things in a notebook. I love them Mm -hmm. both. Have you got a third one for us? Okay. um, Oh, listen, that's right. Communal listening. Communal listening. Communal listening. So communal listening is the approach that Jane Ray and I take at the uh, refugee centre that we work in, is that quite often she'll present an image and then we'll have conversations around this image and we'll gather people's thoughts and ideas from, you know, people, refugee people from around the world, different cultures, different histories, different backgrounds. But we'll be focusing on this one thing. And what I will do is I will do a kind of communal listening and I'll collect together people's ideas, uh, thoughts and feelings and also try to be as true as possible to the nuance of how they've tried to express themselves. OK, don't try and take it away from them too soon. Definitely not. If you're going to meet people and if you're going to um, find a way of telling their story with heart, then you need to really work on what it is to listen. And uh, I think quite often we're in a society where we take sound bites of things. So for me, I don't worry about taking a long time to write a story Mm. um, because there's many, many different ways of researching. And I'm I'm very keen on researching. And when I talk about researching, I don't really necessarily mean, you know, going into the library and finding out about, you know, the archive material. Mm, mm. I mean, really listening to another human being, a little bit like taking us back to that lady with dementia at the nursing home. It's like how somebody plays on your mind or your imagination. 
Mm. Listen to that as a writer and don't just go, oh, well, that was just something small. I don't know why that's still with me. Really explore why that's still with you. And, and, and that's kind of, for me, where the inspiration for writing comes from. And I always put writing away when I, when I feel like I'm doing something reductive. I just put it away. And that probably drives people crazy because I can't say I'm going to hit the deadline or whatever. But I usually do in the end. It sounds like uh, writing for you is part of it is the excitement of uh, finding out as much as you can about what you don't know. And that involves listening, listening, listening to other people's stories. Mm. I should I should tell you a very funny a funny story that I sometimes tell to young people yeah. is that my uh, when the, my te- my children were sort of young teenagers and embarrassed in absolutely everything that I did um, I was writing Jasmine Skies my second novel and the character the cousin character is a, a dubstep DJ working out of derelict mm-hmm. houses in Old Calcutta mm. and um, I didn't know much about dubstep and so I decided to go I contacted um, a friend and I decided to go around lots of clubs. And I said to my son as he was going to school, um, do I look all right in this to go to this club? He's like, oh, my goodness, you're, you're going to shame me up. You're going to shame me up. I said, no, nobody knows who you are. Don't worry. <laughs> nobody knows who I am. It's fine. I just, you know, I just need to find out about this. Yeah. So I think, you know, the funny thing, as you'll know, is that, you know, being a writer, you've got these strange pockets of information yeah. that you know about. So, you know, I'll often say to a hall of, you know, very cool kids, like, do I look like the sort of person that knows much about dubstep? Yeah. Well, Ask me a question. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Beating them at their own game. Sita, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really interesting to to chat to you. Thank you, Julia. It's been it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Sita Brahmachari sharing her three little things with Julia Copus. You can find out more about Sita on her website at www.sitabrahmachari.com And that concludes episode 369, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 370, in Location and the Writer, Carolyn Smales takes us to a water palace, Mark Illis explores Blackheath, and Claire Fisher wanders through hidden leads. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.